Open up your Bibles to um, the Gospel of Luke. If you need a Bible, you can raise your hand. We'll get one to you. We're going to be in Luke's Gospel, chapter 11. Which again, we just crossed into a a new chapter. Uh, Can I get an hallelujah? All right. Okay. Nobody? Um, Luke 11, uh, chapter, or Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. Let me read it. Then we'll pray and we'll dive in. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. I'm going to stop there and uh, pray with me, guys. God, we, we have a lot to learn. Jesus, we see how you interact with the Father in the Scriptures. We hear how you pray. You talk about the oneness that you have with God. We see that relationship play out and we just want to say, God, Jesus, teach us how to pray. We want to know, we want to reconnect with our Father. We want to know what it looks like to do relationship with the one who made us, with the one who's redeemed us. We want to stop with the silence and the walls and the trying to do things on our own and we want to be your kid. So Lord, I I pray that you would use this morning's sermon and our time in your word to teach us a little bit more about what it looks like to pray. It's in your name that I ask these things. Amen. Um. There are a couple of things straight away that I love about um, the disciples' question here. So uh, kind of reframing the the scene for you. Uh, Jesus, as he often is depicted, especially in the Gospel of Luke, is praying, right, in verse 1. And the disciples come upon him while he's in the midst of this, and um, they see what's going on, kind of wait till he's done, it would appear, and then they ask him, Lord, teach us how to pray. Two things I love about that question. One, it tells us that there is something compelling, something alluring, something amazing about Jesus' relationship with his Father. That when you were to watch Jesus kind of engaging with God in prayer, when you were to hear the way he talked with his father, you would kind of go, 
That's not how I do it. What does he have that I don't? How do I get what he has? Is that even possible for me? Jesus, can you teach us how to pray? Because we want that sort of connection with the Father. You seem to have it. So one thing I love is it shows that Jesus' prayer life must have been compelling in a powerful way on these brothers. But then the second thing, and this one really uh, touches home for me, is that I think what their question also indicates is that prayer is confusing. That it's complex, that it's uh, at times uh, hard to understand. So even these disciples, these guys who would go on to be kind of the super apostles and write scripture and proclaim all these things, are just going, man, we don't understand prayer. We don't understand what it means, what it's all about. We need help on these things. And so... They, like us, need Jesus to come in and help and teach. I wonder if you do feel that. I, I mean, really, I, I, I wonder if we were to sit down and have a conversation about your prayer life, how you feel like it's going. Is it even there? Is there even one at all? I'll find that a lot of things I think are prayer, I've probably said this before, I, I step back and I go, I don't even think I was praying there. I was just kind of maybe maybe sanctified, doing some sanctified thinking or brainstorming or planning, but was I really engaging God there? Maybe I was just kind of venting my emotions or feelings and it feels like this cathartic release to talk about, you know, what this or that person did to me or what I want in my life or what I'm afraid of. But was I actually talking to to God, to Jesus, to my father in that moment or. You know, maybe others of us are kind of on the other side of the spectrum where prayer is like you're not supposed to kind of talk about your feelings and the things you fear. You're not supposed to vent this sort of stuff. Instead, it's like this reverence. It's real quiet. Maybe you quote some scripture and kind of sit there. (laughs) At least it's a Bible app, bro. I'll take that. (laughs) Um, But prayer is confusing, and I I wonder if you feel that. I wonder if you were to um, evaluate what you would say about your own. I think... I'm not the only one who gets tripped up in all this. I think we all should be right here kind of leaning in with these disciples, asking, man, Lord, teach us how to pray. We know we're supposed to do it. We really do want to do it. But we have no idea what it looks like. We want what you have with the Father. Can you teach us? Can you teach us? Now, In our text this morning, what we really have is the beginning, kind of just the beginnings of Jesus' answer. And we'll keep going further uh, in the next few weeks as he gives awesome parables that just encourage his disciples more and more towards prayer. But right now we kind of have the beginnings of his answer there in uh, verses 2 through 4. And really all that I want to do this morning, surprise, surprise, is simply focus on one word. The opening word in his 
answer. I wonder if you see it there in verse 2. When you pray, Jesus says, say what? Father. When you pray, say Father. So it's this idea of God as Father. You probably even see it there in the title of this message. Father, it seems to me, according to Jesus, is is the entry point of all prayer, calling God Father, knowing Him as a child would know a dad, seems to me to be kind of the essential, the core of what prayer really is. And that sort of thing should uh, uh, inform, should should direct all that's going to take place from there as I pray with God. The, the way you begin, the doorway into prayer, is to call Him, Jesus says, Father. Start talking to God like your father. So all I want to do this morning then is slow us down, settle in on that one word, and simply ask, okay, what does knowing God as like a kid knows a father, as as father, what does knowing God as father, uh, how does that influence, how is that going to mark my prayer life? What should that do? To my prayers. What should my prayers be marked by as a result? So this morning I have six marks for you. Six ways that knowing God as Father should mark our prayer lives. Let's get to work. Um, Mark number one. Relationship. Relationship. Knowing God as a child would know a father certainly sets our prayer life within the context of relationship. One of the things I've noticed, um, and you have to bear with me, I'm not saying that all this stuff is bad, but I think it's just interesting. Uh, One of the things I've noticed is that we can make um, prayer this kind of strange, awkward sort of thing. Um, think about it for a moment. All this stuff, perhaps, if you've been a Christian for a while, is normal now. Before, if you were on the outside and you didn't know anything, this stuff looks really weird. Why are we doing these things? I don't know. We have strange postures that we pray in, right? So we close our eyes. Why? I'm not not quite sure. (laughs) We close our eyes. We bow our heads. We maybe get on our knees or around the dinner table at my house, we clasp our hands like this, right? I'm pretty sure Chloe and Bella probably think that God won't hear them if their hands aren't together, right? Really, we just do this so that, you know, because if their hands are free, you know, Chloe's probably going to bop Bella on the head, or food's going to be flying, and we're not going to be able to focus. But this is one of those things, right? You go, let's pray. Now, what is that? I don't know what that is. We have these strange postures. We use strange words sometimes. Like we have a a prayer dialect almost where we'll be talking and then when we get to prayer, we kind of feel like we have to shift the way we talk. So now all of a sudden, you know, uh, I better have some verses to quote. I better have some theological kind of jargon to throw in there or, or um, you know, throw in some Father Gods, you know, again and again and again, whatever it is. I got to start using this language. And if I don't have those verses or I don't have that, maybe I should leave prayer to the real prayers. Let them tackle that. I'll just be quiet over here. Certainly it's not okay just to talk. We have strange tones of voice that we use, right? Have you noticed this? 
as well, where we kind of have not just prayer words and a prayer vocabulary, we also have kind of a prayer voice. Meaning uh, sometimes, and I certainly have done this and do this, uh, you know, you kind of have like these hushed, dramatic tones. Like uh, you, you will all of a sudden start speaking breathy and, and, and things get low. Like, and you notice it in particular if you're out with your friends and you're getting coffee or you're sharing about life over food or whatever. And suddenly, you go, oh, let's pray about that. And then everything just kind of settles in. God, thank you. You know, you start using these weird, um, strange tones of voice. Or depending on your denomination, maybe you go the other direction. Maybe it starts getting a little crazy up in there when you start to pray. But either way, what you find out is that, man, you shift. You shift. There's, there's, there's something that's, here's your normal voice, and then you move into prayer, and then when you say the magic words, amen, you kind of move back to normal. Or not to keep going on this too far, but we, we use things like outlines, or we have memorized prayers, uh, or we use candles, or we use little prayer beads, or um, all these sorts of things, right? Um, I remember when I, all this stuff is shaping our understanding of prayer. I'm just trying to deconstruct some of that for a moment. I remember when um, I was a kid, um, I don't necessarily think this is a Catholic prayer, but I was raised Catholic. Uh, around the table before dinner, we would always say, you know, maybe you guys did this as well. Every single night, uh, bless us, O Lord, and these are gifts which you're about to receive through your bounty, through Christ our Lord. Amen. I don't even know what bounty was as a kid, but I'm saying it. And here's, here's what I, I came to realize. We kind of just felt like we had to say it. Like, these were the magic words you said to get to dinner. So, if we, you know, had pizza or steak on the table, man, we would have that prayer done in a millisecond. Just, amen! But if it was casserole or something you weren't into, you'd get all contemplative with it, right? Bless us, oh Lord. But you know what I'm saying, right? We, we have things like that, and I said it at the beginning, and I'll say it again. I'm, I'm not trying to say that all of these things are necessarily bad at all. Postures, tones of voice, uh, prayer helps. None of that is bad. I use plenty of that. But the problem is, is what can happen. What can happen as a result is we start to drift from the center of what really prayer is all about in its essence, and that is namely relationship. It's namely about a kid talking to his or her dad. It's about a relationship. Like God is here. God wants to talk. That's what I'm gathering from when you pray. Say, Father. If you were to take like that prayer that we would say around the dinner table as kids and, 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 and do something similar in your normal, everyday relationships, you would see how insane that would be, right? Like if I were to kind of pull something similar in a uh, relationship with my wife, it would not go well. Like imagine 
if she was out with a friend or something at dinner and I'm at home and I'm watching TV or whatever and I want to get back to it, but she comes in through the door. Well, okay, I know I got to talk to her, right? That's the right thing to do is I need to talk to her. So I have this little speech I memorized from a Christian husband blog somewhere. And when she comes in through the door, I say something like this as quickly as I can. Honey. I'm so happy to see you. I hope you had a good time. I can't wait to hear about it. Maybe tomorrow, XOXO, amen. Click the TV back on. I did my part, right? Wrong. Like we would never engage our normal everyday relationships in this way. And yet a lot of times that's what we kind of bring in and engage our heavenly father with. He wants our hearts. He wants to talk. He wants conversation. He wants relationship. With you and with me. Not just, oh, we crossed it off of our list or we moved through our little beads or we did our little task. Now we're on to the stuff we really love. No, he wants us to talk with him. When I was um, working at the church down in San Luis Obispo, there was a guy. I think his name was George. I didn't even really know him that well. Okay, um, but I'm pretty sure he will he will have forever made his mark on me. I don't think I will ever forget this brother because of how he prayed. Never heard anyone pray like this. You want to? Here's the catch. You want to know how he prayed? Normal. What I mean is, what was so profound about his prayers, we, as we kind of gathered around, and we were praying for the ministry and all these things, and he was a part of it, and he was praying with us, when it came his turn and he, and he started talking, I was just like, oh my gosh. He literally is just talking to God. He's stumbling on his words. You know, I had this pressure on myself. I'm a college pastor. I'm supposed to have all these fancy things to say. And here he goes, God, you know, I... Dad, I, I love you, and I, I'm just struggling. I'm, Lord, and, and he, just, he was just talking. His, I think his eyes were open, so it was awkward, you know, because I like peeked at him, and <laughs> he was just like doing life. And it was crazy because what I found myself doing is, first of all, saying, "Man, he's breaking the rules." You're supposed to have reverence. You're supposed to have that tone of voice. You're supposed to have whatever. But then I also found myself halfway through his prayers, kind of opening up my eyes just to make sure Jesus wasn't actually physically present in the room. Because he was talking as if God was here. As if he knows him well. As if he's his dad. So just imagine that. Imagine talking to God as if he were present in the room. It it forever made a mark on me because of how common it was. Why? Teach me how to pray, bro. Because that was amazing. I um, imagine that this is how the disciples would feel with Jesus. 
Because this is like Jesus' relationship with the Father. In fact, if you recall and you've been going through with us uh, Luke's gospel, back in Luke 10, verses 17 to 24, I'm not going to read them. But what you have there is Jesus discussing things with the disciples, talking about their mission trip and what just happened and all this stuff. And then just seemingly out of nowhere, seamlessly, it would appear, he just starts talking to his heavenly Father. He's just going, hey, guys, yeah, well, remember this and remember that. And God, I thank you. I thank you that you've revealed these things to kids and hidden them from the wise. Thank you, Father. Oh, and by the way, disciples, uh, we need to go. He just moves in and out as if his father is just another person in the room. Certainly the most important person in the room, but just another person in the room. The disciples probably like me were going, wait. Who's he talking to now? Is it us? Is it where's he? Where's he going with? I want a prayer life like that. That's marked by relationship. A kid talking to his dad or her dad. When you pray, Jesus says, "Say, Father." So, Mark number one, relationship. Now, Mark number two, um, affection. Affection. When we think of God as our father, uh, another thing that should come to mind, I hope, is this idea of affection. Now, I have been around long enough to know that when some people hear the word father, what comes to mind is not immediately affection. I realize that maybe for some what comes to mind are things more like abuse, neglect, absence, that sort of thing, coldness. I was just talking with one of my buddies who's in from out of town, and he's still struggling. I mean, he's a grown man, and he's still struggling with the fact that his dad rarely, if ever, said, son, I love you. I mean, his dad was present physically, but emotionally on the other side of the world. And that has effects. And so I realize calling God Father, you might at first have to work through some of that. But when, when Jesus is saying, listen, when you pray, say Father, what he is saying is, is listen, my, 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 my Father is, is, is a Father like it was designed to be. In other words, he loves you. He delights in you. He's affectionate for you. You have his heart. And he wants to talk. This uh, affection of a father for a child, no doubt, is what Jesus himself enjoyed as God's son. Um, you remember, perhaps, what God declares over Jesus at his baptism, right? When Jesus is just about to embark on his ministry. And that's important. Before Jesus has really done anything, he already has the father's love, right? That's what it means to be a kid. I don't wait for my kids to be able to provide for me or to pay me back for stuff or to do good, do good for me before I love them. You love them the moment they place that little kid in your arms. All they are is one giant ball of need at that point, but you love them so much. Well, Here's what God the Father says over his son at Jesus' baptism, Luke 3, 21 and 22. When Jesus had been baptized and was praying, 
The heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. That's the declaration that will get Jesus through the temptations and the cross. God doesn't wait to tell that to Jesus uh, until after he's proven himself. He gives him his love and his delight and his affection before he goes out. Because that's what he needs to break the power of the devil. The love of the Father. And the crazy thing, you guys, is that when we are baptized into Jesus, or like we talked about a few weeks ago when we did uh, awesome baptism here, we are immersed, we are enveloped, we are dropped into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We are adopted into the family, and in essence, that same declaration The Father over the Son of delight and affection is yours and mine in Jesus. So I wonder, I wonder, if you live under that sky, if you live under that voice, if you live under that declaration. I mean, stop for a moment and hear the Father say this to you who are in Jesus. You are my beloved child. With you, I am well pleased. Let that sink in for a moment. The gospel is not that Jesus is the favorite son and we by grace are kind of granted to be these little servant children that sleep out in the shed but but can kind of come in for a warm meal every now and then. The gospel doesn't just get us a place in the shed. What the gospel is what the gospel does is it takes all that rightly only belongs to Jesus and shares it fully, completely, wholly with us so that we are seated with Christ and the Father in the heavenly places so that The declaration of the Father over the Son of delight and affection is yours. And you are the object of God's love and pleasure. You're in the house. There's one more thing worth mentioning here on this idea of affection. Um... And that is this, even when we, just to kind of drive the point even deeper, even when we are at our worst, even when we are the complete polar opposite of lovely, delightful, you say, I've never been that. <laughs> I'm always lovely. I'm always, no, yeah. Um, even when we are at our worst, when we are wayward, sinful, rebellious, What we understand by God as Father is that He still pursues 
And he still loves, and he's not going to relent. Listen to this. This is David uh, soaring in song, as it were, in Psalm 103, verses 8 through 13. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth... So great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And here it is, the ground for this sort of thing. He he grounds it in the idea of a father to a kid. He says this, verse 13, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. So the relationship of a kid to a dad calling God father means he is going to be relentlessly pursuing you and he loves you even when you are at your worst. Is that not what we see with the prodigal son and his father, right? Do you remember him running out to meet his wayward son? Luke 15, verse 20. While he, the prodigal son, was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. There is no arms crossed. Wait till you pay me back. There is arms open. Get in. Where have you been? Isn't that awesome? Affection. He's not put off by you and your neediness. He's not mad at you for where you've been and what you've been doing. He's so glad that you're here. That's what father means. So in many ways, then, when we come to our father in prayer, we are, if I could be so bold, we are letting him love us back to life. You need that love. You need that more than you realize. And I get it. It feels like Disneyland. It feels like fairy tale. It feels like no way. Sometimes I am a mess. No way is he going to just going to love me in the spot that I'm at. But he does. And here's the thing is your sin, your mess. It's no it's no mystery to him. He sees that and a thousand times more in you than you even see. But he takes all of his, he, he'll deal with our sin, he'll deal with all this, but all of that is placed within the context of a father to a child. And that changes the name of the game. It's not a judge saying, go out and reform and get right, and then you'll be right with the law. It's a father saying, I'm here. What can I do? Let's help. Let's do this. It's amazing. And what we find as a result of letting his love in and letting it, letting it bring us back to life is that we grow in affection for him. His love warms our heart in love for him. And so then, man, this, this, this prayer life becomes this exchange that should kind of glow. It should kind of be like a fireside chat, if you will, with our father, where there's just something lovely about it, affectionate, 
one. So mark number one, relationship. Mark number two, affection now. Mark number three, unrefinement. Uh, if there's any English majors in here, they know that's not actually a noun. It's not a word. It should be. <laughs> Microsoft Word, Merriam-Webster, they let me down. I said, I can't make, I can make refinement, you know, a word, but unrefinement isn't. I said, you know what, come on. We can do this. So approaching God as a kid would a father means prayer should be marked in some sense by unrefinement. This mark really builds off of the previous one. And here's what I mean, because when we know we have God's affection, when we know we have his love, no matter how big of a mess we are, when we know his arms are open and he's happy, we're here. We're not a bother to him. When we know we're safe. In other words, then what can happen is, is man, we can come with our with our, our raw, unrefined mess, with our with our sewage, if you will. We can just bring who we are to God. We can bring the real us to the real God. Think about your other relationships with people for a moment. You know you have kind of these you might not say this, but intuitively you kind of categorize uh, it probably into these two different categories. You have those relationships where they're not safe and you know it. Where you know, okay, this is kind of an exchange here and I have to keep performing. I have to keep the song and dance up. I got to keep scratching the back, keep making sure I, t- I, I do the dance. And then they will continue to love me. But if that goes, I know they will go with it. Your relationships like that. But then you have these other relationships, I hope. Where you know, gosh, okay, I've let it all hang out. They've seen some sides of me that I wish nobody ever saw. And they're still here. And they still love me. They haven't turned on me. I've taken off the mask. They've seen the blemishes. They've seen the junk. And they're by my side still. That's the sort of, that second one, that's the sort of relationship we have with our Father. That's what... Knowing him as dad, as father, means. It means he knows all about you and he loves you. So you're safe to come unrefined. In fact, you desperately need to. Don't you dare clean up yourself before coming to God. You come to him to clean you up. Or in other words, we bring our real selves to a real God and find real help for our real needs. And if we don't bring the real stuff, we won't have the real help. And so prayer will feel superficial to us. It will feel, eh, nothing really happens because we're not bearing our heart and bringing it to the one who cares and can really help us. This idea of being unrefined really is captured in the idea of uh, being a kid, I think, right? Um, does it get more unrefined than a child? In fact, I think I just heard Levi screaming. <laughs> Take Levi as an example. You don't have to guess. Here's one of the wonderful things. When you've lived in the world of adults, you always have to kind of wonder, what do they really think? 
we all put on this kind of thing out here, but inside we got all this stuff churning. We're not letting people see. With the kid, you know what they think. They just go, man, that mole on your face is weird. Like, oh, okay. Like, can I touch it? Yeah, you can touch it. Fine. Or like with Levi, I know when he likes the food and when he doesn't. It's clear as day. When he doesn't like it, we're going to try to bring the spoon towards. He's got a number of tap tactics he could use. One, it's kind of that like lock jaw thing where you need pliers to get through. You're not going to get through that. The other now is this arm that flaps out and knocks the spoon across the floor, which hopefully he's learning is not a smart idea. And now you know, he's becoming more verbal, so now he's finally got that word that every parent loves. No! Right? But then if it's something he loves, like, oh, I bring out some watermelon, hey. I kid you not, it's it's really cute. He's got this thing he does where he, he, he not only does he open his mouth, but he like clicks his tongue as he's going for it. He, he goes. <laughs> it's so funny. But it's just like, wow, this kid. So I know his heart is right here. His heart is out in the open. I know what he's thinking. I know what he's feeling. And that's a beautiful thing. And that's the sort of thing we want when we're talking to our dad in heaven. When we're talking to God as father, we bring the real us to the real God and find real help for our real needs. And anyhow, we're trying to posture and do something else. It's going to fall short. It's going to fall flat. I would encourage you to um, engage God in what I would call toddler talk. Therefore, seriously. We get so fancy about the way we talk, but I love how kids talk. I w- I, it would be so awesome just to be able to say, God, I'm angry. God, how could you? God, I'm jealous. Like just naming, owning like simple little toddler-like things because we're kids. We are, let's, let's face it. We might get more sophisticated at hiding it, but we're kids at the, at the base of it. We need our dad. I was talking to our neighbor just yesterday, and she was talking about how she was trying so hard. She'd fallen into big things before in her past. She didn't want to fall into things again. And she was trying so hard to get her license and all these things so she could do this stuff. And she was she was bottling it all up, knowing that she felt like she needed to cry and she needed help. But she was bottling it. And it was just sitting here in her stomach. And finally, when she the test for the permit came, she just starts bawling. Because she's like, I just had to let it out. And that's just it. Even as grown adults, we know that we need help. We know that we're kids. We know that we're full of anxiety and all this stuff. And we need to just talk like toddlers sometimes. Stop blaming other people. Stop saying all this stuff. Stop trying to be civilized. And just say, God, I'm scared. I'm a grown man and I'm scared. I need my dad. Can you come? Can you help? Here's what's amazing, if you look carefully in the Gospels. The people that come with their mess in the foreground, the people that come with their junk on full display to Jesus, never get turned away. (laughs) In fact, they're held out as the models for you and I. They are the ones, the sick are the ones that need the physician, right? They're the ones that Jesus says, I come for them. I'm here for them. You want to know the people that you see get turned away? It's the opposite. It's the adults. Hmm. 
It's the ones who are mature. It's the ones who are clean. In other words, it's the Pharisees, right? It's the ones who try to posture and put forward something on the outside that's not true on the inside. They put out like they've got this, you know, they're, they're righteous and they're clean. On the inside, they're full of all sorts of sin. That's why Jesus says, I, I, I can't help you. As long as you think you're healthy and righteous, I cannot help you. There are, you're not bringing the real needs to the real God. This is just a game and I'm not going to play it. So he uses words to describe them like hypocrite, which in, that, in the Greek there is referring to the, the, the stage and the, the masks that the actors would wear. You've got masks on, it's not you. It's hypocrisy. Or he would say, man, you're whitewashed tombs. You're clean on the outside, but dead on the inside. Bring the inside out and I can touch that. Let's be toddlers again. I think it's awesome. Really, when you look at the Psalms, this is exactly what you see. These guys say things that you and I would almost sometimes like wouldn't even dare to say. We would think like, did he just did he just say, how long will you forget me? You're like, wow, I don't think I would say that to God. Will you abandon me forever? Sounds like a toddler throwing a tantrum. He's being real with his feelings, and God can work with that. Now, hear me, I'm not saying, this is not permission, this idea of being unrefined is not permission to be rude or disrespectful or all this. It's permission to be real, and to bring the real stuff you have to the real God who can help, okay? This is precisely what we see with um, Jesus, right? Um I love this text. Think about it again with me. I know I've referenced this before. Hebrews 5, 7, talking about Jesus' prayer life, says this, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Here's what I wanted to drive home in this. Number one, Jesus' prayer life seems to be a mess. Loud cries and tears. But then number two, the author of Hebrews says, and that's why he was heard. There was a reverence to this. And so God heard him in that. Now, check that with me for a moment. When you think reverence, what do you think of? Calm, composed, a sacred, solemn moment. Everything's in its place together. We're just quiet before God. But the author of Hebrews is saying, there was amazing reverence in these loud cries and tears, in this mess, in the snot. There was reverence for God. Why? How? Well, here's what I want you to catch. When we come to God as Father in our unrefined way, with our real raw stuff, what it is actually doing is so pleasing to Him, it's honoring Him because it's saying, I know you can help. I know you can help with the real stuff I'm facing. On the contrary, when we clean ourselves up, when we come all composed and maybe give God some little niceties and some little phrases and quote some scriptures and go home, what we're kind of saying is, okay, I can take care of most of this on my own. I'll clean up myself. I'll take care of this. And it, it might look like faithfulness. It might look like respect. Honestly, it's the greatest dishonor we could do to him. 
We can't do this. We can't clean it up. We can't do it. We need to come. Like a toddler just says, I spilled all over the floor and I don't know what to do, Dad. Can you help? He's honored. There's reverence when we bring that stuff to him. Because he loves to come in and help. Mark number four. So we've seen relationship, affection, unrefinement. Now this one's connected. It's kind of building still off of one another. We get Mark number four, this idea of dependence. This idea of dependence. Coming to God with our mess, with our raw sewage, with our hearts tangled in knots, bringing this sort of stuff to him shows not just an awareness of our security. We know that he has affection for us and we're secure, we're safe, so we can just kind of be the real stuff we got. It also shows an awareness of our need. That we know he is the one who can help. That's why we come to him that way. It shows our dependence on him. And there's no greater relationship, I think, that you could pull from as an illustration of this than the father to the kid and a parent to a kid. We're dependent. If, if I stopped, if Megan and I stopped caring for our kids for a couple of days, it'd be over for them. And the same is absolutely true times a thousand for us and God. We are more dependent than we know. And prayer really is kind of uh, finally giving up on the charade of self-sufficiency and, and, and saying, help. I can't do it. I need you. This one, all of these are hard. This one's going to be particularly hard for us as human beings, but then especially here in America, and then especially probably uh, even more so here in Silicon Valley. Um, I feel like I got a kind of a humorous illustration of this when we were um, traveling, which, listen, with three kids, and the time change, and oh my gosh, it was crazy. We essentially landed here at what would have been 1.30 a.m. there, and it was bad. But we were uh, we had a, 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 a transfer. Uh, we're changing gates in Chicago O'Hare, which is a massive airport, right? And that's why they drive a lot of their planes through there. And um, we were going through. And, and 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 if you're a parent of three kids, uh, when you see the you know that your gates so far away and all this stuff, you're like, oh no, this is going to be horrible. But when you make your way through and you see those little those little runway sidewalks, you know what I'm talking about, those like conveyor belt sidewalks, um, it's like a godsend for you, right? You go, oh, we needed the help. I'm so tired of holding all this stuff and corralling these kids. We get in this little thing and it just does the work for us. You know, you just kind of cruise. And, and theirs was pretty amazing. There were flashing lights and all this. It was almost like being at Disneyland. But as I'm on this thing, and I got my kids, and we have a moment to take a breath, I look over to the side, and what do I see? I see those people, those, those proud, those strong people, who, who too, they don't need help. They're on the side. They got all their luggage, and they're pulling, and they're, they're, they're going as fast as they can. I'm doing nothing. I'm lounging like this with my kids, right? and I'm, I'm passing them, right? You know, and, and, and they're working, they're sweating, and it just occurred to me, what? Maybe, maybe you want the little extra, you know, burn some calories. I'm not sure. What is it that would keep a person from wanting to get on and get some help? 
and be able to rest for a while. And I think, and I don't know the motives, and obviously this is just an illustration, but this is the kind of idea of, like, hey, I don't need that. I got this. Oh, man, they're getting way up there. I got this. I got this. We keep going. We don't like to stop and say, I'm dependent. I, I can't do this. And God saying, come over here. I'm going to get this thing going for you. I'm inviting you into this relationship. Talk to me about everything you're struggling with. I'm here. You are more dependent than you know. Stop it with the charade of self-sufficiency. This sort of attitude will dismantle your prayer life. Because prayer to God is fundamentally the expression of like a kid to a father. Uh, it's one of, one of dependency. Uh, this is exactly what we see again, Jesus exemplifying for us perfectly. Um, this is what he's getting at when he says things like this. Uh, I'm just going to kind of run through a few texts in John. John 5.19, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord but only what he sees the Father doing. John 5.30 I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 8.28-29 I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. So this is Jesus talking about his relationship as son to a father. And it is one of complete and utter dependence. I can do nothing except for what he does in and through me. That's an amazing thought, isn't it? Paul Miller, the author of the book I gave away, reflecting on verses like these, makes this stunning observation. When Jesus tells us to become like little children, he isn't telling us to do anything he isn't already doing. Jesus is, and I hear this, this blew me away, and I sit back and go, is this true? Yeah. Jesus is, without question, the most dependent human being who ever lived. Because he can't do life on his own, he prays and he prays and he prays. The prayer life is an expression of outright, complete, utter dependence upon the father. A kid resting, relying on his dad. And Jesus exemplifies that fully. Our sense of, hey, we can do it on our own, is not an asset. It's not a sign of our maturity. It's not a sign of our wisdom or greater stature than Jesus. It's a sign of our foolishness and our vanity. Jesus, the perfect man, understands this and lives in perfect dependence upon his Father. I can do nothing. But what he's kind of doing and through me, I wait on him, I, I pray to him, I talk to him. That's What a son to a father looks like. So prayer then is an expression of this dependence. We talk to God about everything. About our, he cares about everything. Not just your spiritual stuff. Everything is spiritual. You have the Holy Spirit in you. You can take a normal meal and make it shine with, with, with the glory of God because you do it with the heart of Jesus. Everything. 
Everything. Pray about what you're going to say to this person when you see him. Pray about what your task should be for the day. What your priority should be. What should I do with my spouse to show her that I love her? What should I do with my money to show the world that you are greater? What should I do here? What should I do there? What do I do about these fears and these temptations and these worries and these jealousies and this bitterness and that lust and what? God help me. Every aspect of your, just conversation. You can do nothing apart from him. Stop pretending. You're only hurting yourself. I'm only hurting myself. Prayer is an expression of dependence. When you pray, say, Father. Mark number five, these last two, in case you're worried, I'll go quicker. I know I always reach that point in a sermon where I imagine people go, "Uh uh-oh. How long is this thing going to (laughs) go? Mark number five, hope, hope. Her prayer life should be marked by hope if we know God as Father. What we see with this is that when we know Him as Father, in our prayers, we are not merely going to express our dependence, we're also going to expect His provision, you guys. We're not just going to express our need, we're going to expect His meeting of that need in one way or another. When you look at kids, it's awesome because they just naturally seem to know how to dream and how to hope. I mean, over time, for sure, it gets beaten out of them, right? But there seems to be this thing like, you know what? I'm not worried about how we're going to get food on the table. I'm not worried about how the bills are going to be paid. I'm, I'm worried about, right now for my kids, it's, you know, how we're going to play with the lizards and how many lizards we're going to catch for our little aquarium and all this stuff. Like, I, I'm dreaming and hoping, and I know that my dad and my mom are going to take care of me. I know that it's going to be okay. I have this hope in their provision, this hope in their care. But often we can lose this. Often we give in to sort of cynicism or pessimism in relationship to God, our Father. And we've had those experiences that we don't like to talk about. Everybody likes to talk about when God answers their prayer. But what about when we pray and we pray and we feel like nothing happens? And those sort of settle in and we kind of don't talk about this. The elephant sort of in the room that we don't address. And And what this means is that we continue to use the language of prayer. Like, hey, I'll pray for you. But we really don't do it because we don't believe anything's going to happen. We don't have hope. To quote Paul Miller once more, many Christians give in to a quiet cynicism that leaves us unknowingly paralyzed. We see the world as monolithic or frozen. To ask God for change confronts us with our doubt about whether prayer makes any difference at all. Is change even possible? Doesn't God control everything? If so, what's the point? Many Christians haven't stopped believing in God. We've just become functional deists. You know what a deist is? Deism is the belief that God created the world, but then he kind of left it to itself. So many Christians believe in God, but they just believe, they believe that he's somewhere out there, not here, near. Not intimately engaged in everything that you're doing, I'm doing. Living with God at a distance. But as we learn to pray well, we'll discover that this is my father's world. Because my father controls everything, I can ask and he will listen and act. Since I am his child, change is possible and hope is born. Now, to be sure, we don't always get the answer that we want. But we can say on the authority of Scripture, we'll look at this more next week and the week following. He is answering. 
He will move. It's the sort of thing that we see with David in Psalm 5, verses 1 through 3. I'm not going to read it in full, but basically he just says, I'm praying to you in the morning. You want to know what I'm doing? I'm looking for your response as the day goes on. There's an expectation, there's a hope, because this is my father's world, and I'm talking as a kid to a father. I know he loves me, I know he's here, I know he can help, and I know he wants to, and he will. I'm going to look for his hand, I'm going to look for it. The ways that he's going to respond. And I'm not going to give up. This is certainly the sort of thing that Jesus enjoyed with his father, this sort of hope. His hope wasn't a naive hope that he was going to say some magic words and it was going to happen just the way he said it, right? Sometimes it didn't work out the way that he even asked, right? You might think Gethsemane. He knew it would be hard. He knew sometimes his father's answer would be no, but he knew that his father ultimately would vindicate and provide for him in the end. He knew his God would be at work. And this is what we see like in John 16, 32, when he tells his disciples, behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and leave me alone. But I am not alone for the father is with me. Now, I know the cry on the cross. Why have you forsaken me? I know that. I know that momentarily it would appear that God really does leave his son alone, but not in the end, you see. There was a hope that Jesus had. The hour is coming. The cross is near. My father's not ultimately going to leave me alone. And you know what? Three days after the resurrection, that proves true. Three days after the crucifixion, that proves true. As the father raises the son, vindicates and provides for him more than perhaps he ever could have even imagined on that side of the cross. There's hope. There's hope. This really leads us to the last thing I should say here, and this is where we'll close. Mark number six is this idea of grace. This idea of grace. When we come to know God as Father, we come to see that prayer is all of grace. We should, up to this point, be asking, how in the world is this true for us? How in the world do I get to call God Father? How come I get a relationship with Him? How come I have His affection? How come I get to come with my mess and He doesn't kick me out of the kingdom, out of the throne room, but invites me in deeper and promises help? How come I have hope for tomorrow? How come I have the Father's provision and His promises that are sure and steadfast and anchors for my soul? How do I get these sorts of things? When I am a sinner, a rebel to the core, there is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God, turned away from Him, given the stiff arm. Why are we invited back in? You know the answer, but I never want to assume it. Ever. We get this relationship with God because... Of Jesus. 
At every point along the way with these marks, I tried to show you Jesus is the fulfillment of it. Jesus is the example, uh, preeminent example of these things. He is the true son in relationship with the father. He is the one who rightly gets the father's affection for all that he is and all that he does. He is the one who lives in perfect reliance and dependence on his father and hopes in him to the end, never faltering, never giving into the fear of man or the love of stuff. He is the one. And yet on that cross, our sin is imputed to him. All of our junk, all of our rebellion, all the stuff that we have done that says, man, we don't deserve this, put on the Son. And it's as if the line of communication is cut between the Son and the Father for those moments at Calvary. So that the line of communication could be reestablished between a sinner like me and my dad in heaven. Isn't that awesome? Just read you this text and I'll close. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So here's the wonderful promise I leave you with. If you feel like you struggle with this relationship, you struggle to know God loves you, you struggle to bring the real self to the real God, you struggle with dependence, instead you like to do the self-sufficient thing, you're struggling with hope, instead you're, you're feeling depressed and, and hopeless. Listen, God, Jesus, sends His Spirit into you. You have His Spirit today, and one of the chief things that the Spirit is sent to help you do is to learn what it looks like to have God as your Father and to talk to Him in prayer and relationship. And then also, He's going to help you with all of this so that we can grow more and more like Jesus didn't have that relationship. He will teach us to pray. When you pray, say, Father. Amen? Let's pray. Father, We stand in awe that we get to say that. We stand in awe that you love us. That you pursue us even in the midst of our our withdrawal. Even though you know all about the junk. God, I pray that as we know you, as we press in and know you more and more as Father, as a kid knows a Father, that you would ignite our prayer lives. You would, in that place, teach us how to pray. Thank you. To name I ask these things. Amen.